At this point, I would invite you all to be turning in your Bibles to John 1, 1 through 18. But as you're turning there, actually, I'd like to pray for the reading of his word first. Lord and our God, we thank you this morning that you are the word made flesh, that Jesus, you came and you lived and died and rose again for us. Father, I pray that you would meet your people here in your word, that you would delight to encourage us, that you would feed us, and just in this ordinary means of grace, God, that you would be at work in the hearts of your people. For the name and delight of your Son, we pray and ask these things. Amen. This is John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This concludes the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. As we embrace upon a journey today of going through this first chapter of John, this is a passage that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Some, however, are not. So as the minister who God has placed before you today, it is my joy and privilege to open his word and expound and show the truth of what it is that he has for us today. In this often quoted passage, I think that many times people assume some things. They get some things wrong. That there are components about this that we want to read from our worldview rather than what it is that he says in his written word. I believe it's actually a struggle and desire of many pastors that in the midst of the nuances and the small things of a passage, sometimes we can get caught up with many things and miss the plainness of a message and miss the core of it. Now I'm aware as we embrace and embark on this, this passage here, as we go into this passage together, there is much that I want you to see of the theology of who God is. That is, if we think of this being so pregnant and full of theology, it gives us the theology of the triune God, the theology of Jesus being fully God and fully man. 
But before us, and I think something that we must see in this theological pursuit, that is the theology being the study and pursuit of God, that we need to see what does this mean for us? We can miss the big theme of this passage as we get into some heavy theological terms and places that we will go by God's mercy today. But we look at this and say, what does this mean for me? As I preach to a room of many Bible-loving and believing and, and, and proclaiming Presbyterians, I'm thankful that you look at this and you see this even from the jump, this first verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It soars out of the gates with what it is that John, the writer, wants you to see. So there is much theologically, but we must consider what does this Word being flesh, what does the Word being with God and the Word being God have to do with each of us? My hope and prayer is that as we approach this theologically rich passage that the Lord will come before you today and that you will walk away not saying, oh, how interesting, or grow in your head of the things of God, or be affirmed in the theology of the things that you already believe. But I hope and pray that by the power of the Spirit at work within you and in this room, that He will transform your hearts, that you will take you to deeper places, that you will go to places here in this holiday season that has much warmth and joy and things to be celebrated that are human, that we would consider that which is divine, that which is eternal, that which the prophets foretold, that which is the incarnate God. So as we think about these things, my hope and prayer and this more personal question is, as we consider this text, text and what it means for each and every one of us, what are the places that maybe you don't need to say, yeah, I theologically agree or assent to those things today, but how or in what places of your heart and your life could the Word made flesh become more real? What are the places that you are not wanting or letting go within your heart. My hope and prayer, my purpose today is that you would delight and see the transforming work of Jesus, the only light of this world. The power of the Spirit is at work even now in the hearts of those who believe and those who are not believing He might very well be drawing you today to Himself. So I think of this primarily as a passage for His people, for that is what we are gathered as His people on this Lord's Day morning. But I hope that He would comfort your heart that you would see in this passage, truly the Word made flesh is for God's covenant people and He will draw you into deeper communion with Himself. Again, the three glorious realities and theologies that we see here is this. First, the eternality of Jesus in verses 1-5. through five. Second, that of the prophecy of Jesus in verses 6-13. through 13. And 14-18, through 18, we will get into the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus is eternal, the prophets foretold him he is God, as well as the incarnation of Jesus. To that end, I would ask now that you continue to look with me at your word that is in front of you. If you do not have a copy of, your, of God's word, we would love to get you one. Come find me or one of the other elders after the service. But look with me at our text, and we will see, first of all, that first thing of the eternal nature of Jesus. As we come to this Word made flesh in Jesus, it does get to this first verse. In the beginning was the Word. 
Now I want you to see three aspects related to this first point, for there is much here that we could spend time on and we must look at. The first of those three aspects is this. This is a very familiar language. It points us back to that of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If we look at this and we skip past these things, we start to really develop something that is different. It is very man-centered theology rather than a theology that is centered upon the God of this universe. It's incredibly intentional that the authors did this and points to these things, for it establishes the credibility of who this word is, tithing back to creation. Now, we look at this through a cultural lens in a context that is our own, but we must understand this through the lens of what is historic, what is true, what is timeless. It would have resonance with those who are reading this through the lens of being people who understood and knew much of the Old Testament. We think of those who are Jewish people who would look at this and see that of the Word and look back to Genesis 1 and understand and know that's where this author is going, to see these things. As we consider this, though, we think about this and we say, well, who is it that each of this is written for? We often think of this as this for the Jews. Is this only for Gentiles now, for people who are this side of Christ? Well, we all are ones who do not physically see the body of Jesus. But we are confident of this, that the reality of the living God has come and that He has finished this work, that He has do this, done this work for us. Now, it is evangelistic in nature because here He is saying this gospel is actually for the Gentiles, for the Greeks. But I'm confident as well that it's pointing back and looking to those who are Jewish and would read this, and there's this intentional didactic, as well as evangelistic theme within this passage that you would see what it is that he says in this passage that his own people missed. That they would look to these things and see Jesus. That he is calling out his people, those who have always been his people, but in many ways we see this as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. The word has connotations that truly a Jew would understand as well as a Greek, that they would look at this and see these very next two clauses and say there is much reality within the word that we have to unpack. Because we cannot just go back to creation. We also have to look and see that the word was with God as well. And the third clause, that of the word was God. The word was God. This is not just saying that he was there. This is not saying that he's created. That would be a heresy of the uh, uh, utmost proportions. It would be a disservice to elaborate on something that is not here from the text today. But you cannot find this word being disassociated anywhere in Scripture from being God. He is fully God. This is the child that the people of God were looking for. This is that promised Messiah. As we've been in this question of answering, what child is this? This is Him. This is that child. In many ways, we get to this third clause, and the record scratches, so to speak. There is now this definitive, authoritative statement here. This child's divine and eternal. We have to consider, as we look at this, and consider the babe in the manger and, and, and the, the beauty of a child and the weakness of a, of a physical child. He's far beyond that. There's something powerful beyond that. He is God. There at the beginning. To that end, actually, we, we see much of this in these first five verses, a third thing that I need for you to see, which is the reality of this, that the world was created 
through this child. In and through him, he was created. It's not just the beginning of him 2,000 years ago. That would be false. That would be a problem to see it that way. Jesus is in here at the beginning of this gospel account and every bit God and taking on flesh amongst us. He was with God at the beginning. He was with the Father at the beginning. He is not created. Now, it is often hard for us to grasp the fullness and the majesty of this. And we look at this and see so much within this passage and there's this picture of that of light. And if we look at this passage and see that of light, it's important for us to see what it is that's being talked about with the light. I, I grew up in a Christian home, in a covenant family, Presbyterian home, no less. That as we look at these things and we consider these things, though, my father's two closest friends were Jews. And he was incredibly evangelistic with both of them. That he loved both those men. He wanted them to come to faith. And even at my father's funeral, that was something that they both talked about and spoke about. But one of the things that I point to and, and draw to about this is that the Jewish people love looking to that of light, that they look back to that of Genesis 1 and the creation of light. They look back to these places, and we see that of the, the places like the menorah, and that they have legend and seen that this goes on, that the light for eight days, although we don't have that in the inspired word, it's written elsewhere. But we walk through this and we say that light was important for the Jewish people. It's important for each of us. So for, them to, for this passage to say, and to look at this, and to remember the reality of the absolute transcendence of a light that breaks into this world. It truly is a record scratch. It is not what is to be expected. It is not what they have grown accustomed to see and to think about within their theologies, within their worlds. It really shows the divinity of, of who Jesus is, the, the power of who He is, that true light, that better, that eternal light. He's giving hope, though, for any who hear as he think and look at this. What is the opposite of light? Dark. Which speaks to that as well. For he came into a world that is filled with darkness and filled with people who, in human terms from Genesis 3, have fallen and that they have embraced what it is that is naturally our predisposition, that they have done and fallen with the curse of Adam and Eve there in the garden, that they have continued in the trajectory of being weak, being sinful, but we see this, though, and there's this incredible beauty that comes, and it emphatically points to that true Word made flesh. That Jesus, who is the light, who speaks into every corner of a dark world, who speaks into every corner of our dark worlds, the places that sometimes we're afraid as we go in, into this Christmas season, does He really speak to that, that pain, that hurt, that brokenness, that thing that I struggle to give to Him, is he sufficient or enough for that? Was he really there at the beginning? Is he really God? Did he really save in such a way that scriptures confirms and shows and says that he does? Well, I'd encourage you to look here and just read this, this text plainly. In light of the old, in light of the new, in light of all of it, it all points to Jesus. We see this in this fragility of the world that we live within, that exists within each of our darkness. The light has come for us and for you. May you not forget that and the eternal nature of who this Jesus truly is. As we spend some time on our first point, I need to drive you to our second point in verses 6 through 13. We're going to see here within this the, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jesus. Now, we have spoken a little bit about this, and we see this in many ways, and there are two things that I want you to consider regarding this prophecy of Jesus. 
First of all, that we see here is that of the Scripture showing and holding that of prophet, priest, and king of Jesus. We have to unpack and flesh out what that means for us a little bit. Because if we look at this passage, we see it talking about John the Baptist. We see it talking about him, this man here. That actually, many people at that time were wondering, is he the Messiah? Is he the one who might be the fulfillment of what it is that we as Jews are looking for? Well, there's a promise that he even says actually in this, that I am not he. I am the one who comes before and who after me comes who ranks before me. As we see this, and as I know a little confusing that there are two Johns, the writer and Apostle John, as well as this John the Baptist, he's looking back to what it is that Isaiah has spoken of in the Old Testament and saying that this light, this Jesus, is the very people that we are in need of. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. He's the fulfillment of the things that we truly need. We actually look forward in, in much the same way as well. We looked to Genesis 1 in our first point, and I want you to look forward now, to Hebrews 1, and our second point. Because as we look forward to Hebrews 1, we have to consider and see this reality of what is a prophet. How is it that God speaks through the prophets? Well, Hebrews 1 tells us this, that long ago God spoke to us by the prophets. And in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. So we talk about this, we see this reality that Jesus is the better prophet, that Jesus is the fulfillment of what all the Old Testament prophets were saying and doing and in revealing to us that we must see these things. Our shorter catechism actually states this really helpfully in question 24. How is it that Christ executes the office of a prophet? He executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. For that is what a prophet does. They show the way of salvation. They point to the way and the one who has gone before. They point to the living God. So Jesus right here is pointing to what it is that the Father has planned, of what the Creator God has done for His people. That we're looking at this and seeing that He is this fulfillment of prophecy. That He is who it is that the Old Testament people were looking for. He's who each and every one of us are looking for in those places that are dark within our heart and our lives. But furthermore than this, we also see a second thing regarding the prophecy of Jesus. We look at how this man and what it is that he has done, how he has widened the tent. How he has done something far more than just being for the Jews. That he came for his own people, but as our text here says, they knew him not. We look at this text and we see something really powerful, that there's an incredible instruction for us. It is for our edification that we look at this and we see what it is that the Old Testament only whispers of, that here in Hebrews 1 points to that He is that prophet, that He is the one that we need, that He is the fulfillment of these things. The banner is unfurled here and we see the glorious realities of Jesus boldly declared. It is only in Him as the Word made flesh that we see these things in their fullness by the working and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. What a wild reality as we get to this and consider the office of prophet, priest, and king as we talk through this here today and think about what it is that God has for each and every one of us. This tent that He truly has widened, and we think about this in verse 13, it actually talks about this. It talks about the Jewish lineage that is going on here in verse 13. And it's really important, I think, that we get to this. that It says here, it is not all but to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
So we look to this, and we see this here in verse 13. And actually, many uh, people will debate about what it is. They, they, some will view this actually as Jesus being spoken of. But I believe it's important for us to consider the trunk of the tree, the trunk of the parts, the trunk of a car. Those are all different words. As I've said often, Dr. Alan Tomlinson, who was a seminary professor of mine, would encourage us to look at. The parts that we see surrounding this passage is talking about the people of God. So it's talking right here, I believe, in verse 13, pretty plainly, that's saying... It's not those who are born of the flesh. It's not those who were born in such a way that they had the right lineage of being Jewish. He didn't just come for those people. He came for far more than just those who were Jewish people. He came for those, as it said in verse 12, who believed in His name. It's for any who believes in His name that we're talking about. As we think about that's functionally this concept, this idea of faith, for any who by faith put their trust and the living God who believed that Jesus lived, died, rose again for their sins. He came for them. He came for you. He came for me. Now what's powerful as we look at that and as we think about that, we go, okay, well contextually he's saying that it's not just for those born of the right lineage. And to us, we kind of read over that. But that would have been wildly offensive to a Jew in that day. To include somebody outside of what is the right lineage, the right birth, the right order would be something that they go, no, not my God, not my reading of the Old Testament, that they are looking at functionally in these things and they're, they're looking at this in such a way of saying that I have the rights, I have the privileges, there's something I have done. No, verse 12 tells us right there, he gave the right to become children of God. It is our God who does this work. It is He who gives to us. It is He who gives the gift of faith. It is He who imputes to you His righteousness. Now, it was offensive for them in that day, and this is an offensive message for us today as well. We want to think that we bring something. We want to think that we do something. That it can't just be this Word made flesh for us, that He has done the work. Is there something that we can look at and consider within ourselves as we who are in a Christianity that is often saying, well, you do you. Live out what is right for you. How could somebody dare to impose something that is so other from what it is that I believe? But we actually start that in the wrong place. We start saying and assuming that we have the right rather than assuming that he has the right to, to set the terms. We start functionally putting ourselves in the driver's seat as God when we start doing those things. We become little gods, and that's a really dangerous place for us to be. Rather than saying that there is somebody who is so divine, so holy, so other, so different than myself, that I will bend my knee to their standards that I will see the fulfillment of what it is that they have done here in the New Testament and Old Testament writings, that these are true, inspired words of God, and be confident and live in them all the days that we have here on earth and beyond for the promises that you will be with your God forever if you believe by faith, if you trust in Him. Now, there's a danger as we get to this, though, because many people will look at this and say, well, we, we need to consider possibly that, that he was created, that Jesus was created. Well, if you're already looking at verse 1 through where we are at here in 13, there is no possibility that we can see this reading into this text. He is not created. He is not what is a common uh, truth that we hear. I believe it's in Doctrine 98 of the Mormon Covenant that it will promote a heresy that really goes back further to Arius. And this whole idea that Jesus is the first and created one of the Father, that is not what the Scriptures teach. That is a false doctrine. 
It's a doctrine that our world wants to hold up and that Jesus is one of many, that he is one of possible, many possible different ways. But our word of God does not say that for us. It is not confirmed here in that. He does ask for your belief. He asks for your trust. He asks for you to look to him, that he would be the one who would give you the right to become a child of God. To that end, when you have doubts, when you are lacking the places within your life that really see He is good, that He is right, run to Him. Read His Word. Love His Word. Be people who delight to see Him and to come to these places and see these things. Actually, as we come to the, the end of our second point, I think it's important as this week, as I was, uh, I was finishing up this sermon and preparing I hammer this point a little bit because there is an important point that Ligonier Ministries has a state of theology report that comes out each year. And over two-thirds of the people who responded believed in this idea that Jesus is the first created of God. That is not what it is that we see in Scripture. And it's a really important doctrine that we see of that, of the Incarnation. He's 100% God, and as He is God, He became flesh. We think about this birth, we see that Jesus fully and truly took on human form. Though this is not a theophany, as we've seen in other places of the Old Testament, of that of a manifestation only. It is so much more than that. He actually came and took on physical flesh and tabernacled amongst his people. He dwelt among his people. If we actually look at this, I think it's really important for us to see that he is divine and fully God. And that God came and is recognized in two natures. That is being fully God and fully man. Without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. That Jesus is like us, except in regard to our sin. And his manhood was begotten for us and for our salvation, as the Council of Chalcedon would remind us. So here's the thing that we see here. It's that he is fully God, that he was face to face with the Father, that he is there at the beginning this reality that we see here as we get into this third point, that from His fullness, grace and truth comes. From who it is that He is for us. We walked through that a little bit, into going back into the Septuagint as well, this language goes through that of this hesed, this, this covenantal nature, this loving nature of God's love for us. That Jesus being that love of God for us, that powerful working, that hesed love for us that we see his glory is on display as the grace and truth that you need, that I need. Even that language points us back to that of the Exodus and points us back to places within the Old Testament that further and further confirms and puts nail after nail into the coffin of this certainty of who it is that this Jesus is for you, for me, for this world. He's revealing himself to all. None are given an excuse to not believe. He is that true light. He is that eternal light. He really is that one that we are desperately in need of, who He has revealed Himself, that He is Emmanuel. That nobody has seen Jesus in His fullness. But we look at this and we see as the one who has come and tabernacled amongst us, as the one who is, has come and drawn near to us, this Emmanuel with us. He's come and bought Himself a bride. He's purchased for Himself a church. As one who comes and dwells with us, it is not that he does this in such a singular, singular way that it's just you and Jesus. You are people 
who he has bought and put into his covenant family. So we live as people in a covenant family. We live as those who are in need of the church. We live as those who are in need of community. We live as those who are in need of the living God, who Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lived in a communal way, had the three of them were eternally there, that we walk through this as God's people that he has purchased through the blood of Jesus. We are to live in communion with God forever. And so for us to live as Christians sometimes that we can be prone to and say, I'm just going to read my word alone. I'm just going to be people who do this, just me and Jesus. I I would dare for you to consider that that is a, a dangerous place to be. That that is a place that actually his word does not allow for us to stand. Because he bought himself a church, a people, holistically, that he tabernacled amongst those people, amongst us, the very people who rejected him, sent him to die. It's a really hard thing for us to look at this and see here as his church to take comfort, though, in these thoughts. Because there are heinous things, again, within our world. There are hard things within our world. Because of that curse of sin that lives within each and every one of us, that we continue to fight against, that it's the battle that we will fight against all the days of our life until it is that we see him again face to face. It is a fight. It is a struggle. But we are not alone. We have him to guide us. And what is it that he gave as the one who is the prophet who came and fulfilled these truths and this word for us? We see in and through this powerful reality that he gave us his word. He gave him himself. And that we as his people should delight in his written word, that we should love his written word, that we should consider his written word and devour it as God's people in a covenantal community such as this, that we would grow as God's people. Now as we get to this, and we, we, we come to this spot where we see this reality of Jesus in, in this threefold way, that he is eternal, that he is the better prophet, and that He is God incarnate, and that from His fullness grace and truth have come, that the love of the Father has come, this steadfast love of God has truly come. I want you to consider what it is that I began my question with at the beginning. What or how is this important for me? How does this apply to me as one of God's people? I don't want you to walk away again just being affirmed of what it is that you already believe, but I want your hearts to be transformed by His power. I cannot do that. I'm a weak vessel standing before you here, but it is the power of God that works for salvation. So if you are standing here as God's people, that there is incredible realities and joys of which you can and should consider today. So first things, consider this as a point of application. Consider the salvation of who he is, what he has done, And take joy and delight in that in new and deeper ways this Christmas. That you'd move past the sentimentality of Christmas. Although there is much joy and family and and Christmas colors, as I have a Christmas tie with a Christmas shirt on, and each of you, many of you have that same in this room, there's much joy that we see in this, this holiday season. But may we not forget that which we truly celebrate. Of what child is this, that he is the Word made flesh for us. Thing too that I want for you to see as we consider this and as we move further into this reality of who he is, I do want you 
to encourage the blessing it is to be in a covenantal community of God. That as He is the one who came and dwelled with us, with us, that He has come and, and invites us and encourages us to be a part of His family all the days that we would have. That you would continue to delight and to see these things and to, to love these things as God's people, together as God's people. And then as you consider these things and as you look at these things and say maybe you've been at 35, 40 Christmas Eve services your whole life. As you walk through these things and consider the eternality of who God is, the prophecy that He fulfills, and the incarnation of what that means for each and every one of you, I would encourage you all to run to Jesus and believe again. For we need fresh eyes to see Him. Otherwise, it does become routine. It does become rote. Don't resist this passage that is before you and don't resist the call of your God to address those places within your life that He is addressing and calling you out to live and look deeper and to see that the Word made flesh has come for those very places that you're afraid of, that you don't want to go. He sees them. He knows your heart. He knows exactly where you're at today. And even in this moment, He might be pricking your conscience and drawing you in those places to Himself for those within the church. And for those who are outside of the church, there is a joy and encouragement that can be found as well. For this is a didactic passage, that is a teaching passage, but it's also evangelistic. As it reached out from Jews to Gentiles, it reaches out to any who is outside of the family of God, who by faith believe. But that's what we have to do. Believe. It cannot be coming on your terms. It cannot be coming in some other way with, with a hint or a little bit of, oh, this could be right. I'll hedge my bets. No. The Gospel of John was written for this very purpose, so that you may have life, that you may believe, John 20 says. That we look at this, and as John the Baptist has reminded each of us here later on, behold the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. This light has come. In this child, you are no longer in darkness. May the light of the world encourage and grow each of your faith more this day. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that you are at work in this world. That you are the word made flesh who came and dwelt among us, and tabernacled among us. May we not forget that you are the better prophet. That you, may we not forget that you were there at creation. May we not forget how you are our Savior. How you delight to give salvation to those whom you have given the right to become children of God. So Father, I pray for this word that you have given to your people today, that you would let it soak to places that would transform hearts and minds for your glory. It is in the powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.